catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Today we speak to broadcasting icon Bob Costas about hosting the 2016 Olympics in crisis-ridden Brazil, covering Colin Kaepernick, and how a network manages broadcasting the entertainment of sports when political issues are ripping out through society. Those who play a belligerent and brutal game, can we expect all of them to confine that aggression to the field? Bruce Jenner was best known as the patriarch of the Kardashian family. The Kardashian family and Arthur Ashe are not exactly on the same page. Flocky's 32 years old and he's acting like a drunken frat boy. It's not cool. Everyone understands that. Bob Costas, great to have you on the show. I know you wanted to say something before we delved into the issues of the Olympics and Colin Kaepernick and broadcasting in the 21st century. Please go ahead. The floor is yours. Yeah, it's just the idea, Dave, and I'm sure that you've noticed this, and any reasonable person, no matter where they may fall on the spectrum, be it sports, politics, whatever, would recognize this, that context has been largely lost in a social media world, in a hot clicks world, And so when people have a point of view to express, even if it's a measured and reasonable point of view, I think a lot of us don't so much fear disagreement as we fear the inevitable misrepresentation. It isn't just that you say A and it comes out B. You can say A, and by the time the technological game of telephone is over with, like kids used to play in kindergarten, A has become Q. It's a complete distortion and misrepresentation of what you said, and often a leap from that where people extrapolate a series of beliefs or attitudes or motivations that they just assign to you, never having met you, never having spoken to you, never having followed up on the story that may be of interest. They're just writing off something else they saw on the internet. So it's the 1,000th iteration of a response to something that may have been inaccurate when first reported. You can even call just an immediate take on something, a report. So while I'm all for the hurly-burly of debate, I've too often been simply misrepresented. It's not a matter of opinion. It's no, I did not say that. No, I do not believe that. And I think that makes some people hesitant, not because they don't want to be involved in interesting discussions, but because they'd rather not have what they said taken and twisted this way and that by the left or by the right so that people are debating using your name, especially if your name is at all bold-faced. They're using you as a jumping-off point when you haven't said or done anything of the kind. And I'll give you a couple of examples, one that came from the left and one that came from the right. During the 2014 Sochi Olympics, 
the infamous Bob Costas Pink Eye Olympics, the very first night when I came down with a pink eye, I'm literally at the infirmary at the broadcast center trying to deal with that. But I also tried to host the first few nights before it kind of caught up with me. And one of the things we had, which I thought was a very responsible thing to do, and which NBC had done partly at my urging, was that they had a Russian journalist, and they also had David Remnick from The New Yorker, who had won the Pulitzer Prize for his book about the collapse of the Soviet Union. They had them there for a discussion that I would moderate about the meaning of these Olympics, because only someone who was terribly naive wouldn't realize that Vladimir Putin's fingerprints and perhaps dark intentions were all over these Olympics, and how should we view these Olympics? Okay. In the course of that, in a brief setup piece, I mentioned that citizens in Russia generally, at least at that time, gave Putin a high approval rating because his kind of strutting and chest thumping on the international stage had restored their sense that Russia, the former Soviet Union, was again consequential in international affairs. They had felt emasculated to some extent by what had happened over the previous generation. And that, as troubling as it might be to the Western world, actually made Putin a popular figure in Russia because he had made them consequential again. And I noted briefly his involvement in some circumstances, being involved in brokering a deal with Iran and his affiliation with Syria, etc. None of this was said with approval. It was only said that he is formidable. Putin has been a fixture on the international stage for almost 15 years as either president or prime minister. That's far longer than any other leader among the world's most influential nations. Just in the past year, Putin brokered a deal to allow Syria to avoid a U.S. military strike by giving up its chemical weapons and help bring Iran to the negotiating table over its nuclear intentions. And he has repeatedly showcased his confidence to take on the West, particularly the United States, offering asylum to National Security Agency leaker Edward Snowden, enticing Ukraine to back out of a deal to join the European Union, and passing laws viewed as repressive to members of the gay community and their supporters. He even wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, published last September 11th, explaining his view of the situation in Syria and chastising President Obama for calling America exceptional. A month later, Forbes magazine named Putin the world's most powerful person, knocking Obama down to number two. And then we began a conversation in which Putin was immediately correctly characterized as a former KGB operative, an international thug, an oppressor of gay rights, a person who had suppressed dissidents in his own country, and many of them had disappeared or worse. There's no way you could have interpreted this as a reasonable person, as a stamp of approval for Vladimir Putin. This is a man who's not interested in liberalism or the talk of democracy, as you heard from Gorbachev and Yeltsin back when. He is what's called in Russian a gasudarstvenik, a man of the state, a state builder. He is interested in stability, economic development. Yes, there's enormous corruption in this country. Uh, even at this Olympics, there are reports of cost overruns and corruption, all the rest. Even apart from that segment, there were any number of questions I asked 
the president of the IOC. I asked him directly, are you satisfied with the idea that the Olympic flame burns over Vladimir Putin's Russia? I did a commentary at the end of the Olympics that indicated that a successful Olympics only serves to kind of gild the lily for Putin's Russia, while meanwhile fires burn in Kiev as they were about to invade Ukraine almost immediately as the Olympics concluded. The Sochi Games are Vladimir Putin's games, from their inception to their conclusion and all points in between. And if they are successful on their own terms, as appears to be the case, then at least in some quarters, it will help to burnish the image of a regime with which much of the world takes significant issue. No amount of Olympic glory can mask those realities, any more than a biathlon gold medal, hard-earned and deeply satisfying as it is, can put out the fires in Kiev. We're back to Sochi after this. To take that little bit out of context where I said that Putin was ranked as the number one or most influential world leader by Forbes, that served Fox News's purpose for two or three days. And for two or three days, they characterized me as being a big fan of Vladimir Putin. It was a good talking point for them. Now, I must say that Bill O'Reilly and Bernie Goldberg, both of whom know me, went on their own air, on Fox's own air, and said, this is ridiculous. In context, he said nothing of the sort. But it was a good talking point for them for two or three days. Now, regardless of how one feels about the present circus that passes for a presidential race, Donald Trump has flatly, there's no mistaking, his admiration for Vladimir Putin. It's not taken out of context. He stated it over Mm -hmm. and over again. Somehow that doesn't seem as troubling to many of those at Fox News who support him as a completely out-of-context comment by me two years ago did. I need to balance it. I'm going to give you one that came from the other side. Caitlyn Jenner was named the winner of the Arthur Ashe Award for Courage at the ESPY Awards. This announcement came two days after American Pharaoh had won the Triple Crown, and I was part of NBC's coverage of the Triple Crown. Dan Patrick asked me to be on his radio program. And I go on with Dan frequently. He's a friend and colleague, and all you have to do is pick up the telephone. So it's the Monday morning after American Farrell has completed the Triple Crown on Saturday. And that's what I think I'm on the air to talk about. And about eight minutes in, Dan says to me, what do you make of Caitlyn Jenner winning the Arthur Ashe Award? Now, when I woke up that morning, Caitlyn Jenner and the Arthur Ashe Award weren't one of the top 20 things on my mind. I didn't come riding into Dan Patrick's studio on a white steed just to make some kind of statement about Caitlyn Jenner. But he asked me about it live on the air. And in a very careful way, I opened the thing by taking at least a minute and saying, thank goodness we're moving toward being a more tolerant and open-minded society. I wish Caitlyn Jenner all the peace of mind and happiness in the world. And it does take a measure of courage to do what she has done. However, as I understand the meaning of the Arthur Ashe Award, nothing to this point that Caitlyn Jenner or Bruce Jenner prior to had done would have lined up with what the Arthur Ashe Award represents. Arthur Ashe's memoir was entitled 
days of grace. He was one of the most thoughtful and elegant and socially committed people I have ever met in sports. Until that moment, Bruce Jenner, post-decathlon, was best known as the patriarch of the Kardashian family. The Kardashian family and Arthur Ashe are not exactly on the same page. And even with the rollout of becoming Caitlyn Jenner, it was a carefully planned publicity thing. Vanity Fair covered Diane Sawyer interview, reality show to follow. And it wasn't until the acceptance speech at the ESPYs, which was beautiful and moving, that Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner had ever done or said anything that related to any social cause, which is what the Arthur Ashe Award was supposed to be about. I didn't say this angrily. I didn't say it with any negative toward Caitlyn Jenner. And in fact, I had a suggestion. I said, if they want the eyeballs that this obvious tabloid play would bring, because Caitlyn Jenner is the sort of person they're talking about on on all the tabloid TV shows and the sorts of publications that cater to that kind of thing. If they wanted that and they wanted to do something really inspired, they would have had Caitlyn Jenner be on the show, let her make whatever speech she wants to make, but have her present the Arthur Ashe Award to Renee Richards, Mm. who is still alive and in her 80s, and who was Richard Raskin, Dr. Richard Raskin, professional tennis player, and became a transgendered athlete when that was even more out of the ordinary and even a greater struggle than it would be today, and competed against contemporaries like Billie Jean King and whomever would have been uh, her contemporaries at that time. An inspired thing would have been to have Caitlyn Jenner presented to Renee Richards. There is no way that a reasonable person could interpret my remarks as being antagonistic toward Caitlyn Jenner, or more importantly, as being unsympathetic to the rights and the striving for dignity of people who are in the transgender community. Now, many people understood my remarks for exactly what they were, and I appreciate that. Many Neanderthals and mouth breathers said, yeah, that's right, and then said a bunch of insulting and stupid things about Caitlyn Jenner. I don't want their support, and nothing I said should have brought me their support except their own stupidity. But then from the left, I got from a few places that my, quote, criticism of Caitlyn Jenner is wrongheaded and backward and shows how far we have to go. Well, all you had to do was right there. You could click on it and there it would be. You could listen to it for yourself. I said nothing that should have generated that kind of response. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get it off my chest here and give you one more example, and it's a brief one. And it comes from the Olympics. Simone Biles established herself at the Olympics, not only as the reigning greatest gymnast, but as the greatest female gymnast ever. Okay. Mm -hmm. Before the Olympics began, a hundred days out, we did reports from Rio. I was noting at that time when people asked me what to look for. Well, of course, Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps. But keep an eye on Simone Biles. Yep. She has already won the world championship three times. She may be the best ever. When she did win the all-round and she sat with me in the studio, I pointed out that her margin of victory over the second-place finisher was greater 
than the margin of victory of the last nine all-round winners combined since 1980. I did the feature about her and her parents and how she grew up and what her background was. There's no way in the world that I didn't know and appreciate what Simone Biles had accomplished coming into the Olympics and what she left the Olympics as by acclamation, the greatest female gymnast ever. And I said it in my closing remarks at the Olympics as well. But I also interviewed either individually or two at a time or all five at a time, members of the American women's gymnastics team at least a half dozen times during the course of the Olympics. So now the last of these interviews is Allie Raceman and Simone Biles. And at this point, they're giddy. After years of sacrifice and hard work and self-denial, they're going to get to eat cake and get to eat pizza. They're young women, remember. And so they're giddy over the fact that they just met Zac Efron. Mm -hmm. And two questions in, Allie Raisman says, you know, forget all that. We met Zac Efron. The roof, right? Well, and we met yes. Zac Efron. Yes. But he's talked about before. I know, we're just excited. I was going to get to that. I know. I was going to get to that, but let's get to it right excited. away. We're just excited. So we did, we're, I don't even know what to say. We, we met him. <laughs> we did so good on floors, yeah, but she needs to say. Us. Yes, and he was watching us. We yeah. Our best routines. And, of course, as we've mentioned, <laughs> you're something of a, of a Zac Efron Oh, they have it. Yes. Okay. Yes. She almost so, started crying, but she kept it together. People have watched now dozens of hours of them competing. I've interviewed them in one combination or another five times. These young ladies are as happy as can be. And they're showing their personalities. Let them go. Let them go in whatever direction they want. And so they did. And at the end of it, Allie Raceman says, Was that your best interview ever or what? Ever, ever. Ever, <laughs> ever, ever. She's feeling so self-confident. She says this on national television. And I say, why don't the two of you throw it to commercial? And they put their arms around each other and beaming and flawlessly, and this is live, flawlessly they throw it to commercial. Back to Rio with your final two after this. <laughs> My intention, and I think accomplished, was to show what personable and likable young women they are and how, even though they were competitors, they were very, very close friends. During the course of this conversation, I asked Simone Biles the following question. One of the hardest things to do in sports is to deliver on expectations. You had won world championships, but to most Americans, you were not that well known until the few months leading up to the Olympic Games. And then all the hype began mm -hmm. and you delivered on all of it. You didn't seem to be phased during the competition, mm -hmm. but there had to be something churning inside of you saying, hey, this is it. I better do it now. Well, I mean, I I knew it was the Olympics. Like, it was a given. There are Olympic rings everywhere you look. But then we've done so many routines. I told Allie and the girls, I was like, I don't think we could have been more prepared than we are. Like, I've never felt this prepared in my life. So once we went up there, it was just one more routine, just like Marta told us mm -hmm. several times. A handful of websites took that to mean, somehow, that I had disrespected Simone Biles. But... Anyone who understands the Olympics knows how this works. Most Olympic sports are sports that Americans only pay attention to during those two or three weeks. If you put gymnastics on TV once a week, it would get very tiny ratings. In the context of the Olympics, 
It's a big, big deal. Not transforms. And so that's the emergence out of the relative shadows into sports' biggest spotlight. That is not only not a disrespectful question, it's an appropriate and insightful question based on my knowledge of literally decades of being around the Olympics and how they work and how people's reaction to it works. But all you need in today's world is out of 20 million viewers, 20 people who get bent out of shape by this, no matter how uninformed or dopey their take is, and that becomes the first thing when you Google Simone Biles' name. Mm. So there's a distortion of reality, even as people are trying to make legitimate points or do their job in a professional way. I know you were going into the 2016 Rio Olympics, and I know that you were very aware of the big stories, you know, the political crisis, mm-hmm. sanitation, the favelas, Zika. You knew that they couldn't just be ignored. What were your goals a hundred days out, before you got on the plane to go to Rio, what were your goals beforehand in terms of how you wanted to not just cover the games, but cover the broader crisis breaking out in Brazil? Well, our goals were to frame those issues. And we did in the hundred days out segments that we did for various NBC programs like Nightly News and the Today Show and for the affiliates. And then we did an hour long program the night before the Olympics actually began, we did an hour-long program interviewing the mayor, health officials, interviewing security experts, and touching upon all of those issues so that people knew the backdrop against which the competition would take place. And then we promised that if and when those issues intruded, not a little glitch here, a little glitch there, but if they truly intruded upon the games, we already set the backdrop and we would revisit those issues as they came up. I also did a half hour interview with the president of the IOC, Tomas Bach, in which I asked him not only every question I thought was relevant about Rio, but every challenging question about the Olympics themselves. Are they too cozy with authoritarian nations? How much can we trust the honesty of the competition, given the widespread suspicions of doping and the banning of much of the Russian delegation, et cetera, et cetera? Every single question I could think of. And all of that for the entire Olympics was there at NBCOlympics.com. But you also have to recognize the realities of television. And I recognize them. I, I work within them. Primetime television, a newspaper, a website, a radio show that talks about the Olympics or writes about the Olympics doesn't pay a rights fee. NBC paid a billion dollars for this Olympics and billions and billions more for every Olympics through 2032, plus however many hundreds of billions it costs to produce it, to travel and house people and all the production costs and whatnot. So they have to make sure that they get the highest rating possible in prime time. And you get a, get a higher rating showing Usain Bolt sprinting, Michael Phelps swimming, Kerry Walsh Jennings on the sand, then you're going to get with me sitting with Tomas Bach. So the best we can do is show snippets of that in prime time and then have me say the entire interview is available at NBCOlympics.com. That's the best deal that I can make. That's the compromise that I accept. And my rationale is that if I was doing a show like yours on a constant basis. Sure. I could speak at great length, but I would do it to a smaller audience. 
or on HBO, where I was very proud of the work that I did over the years. I wouldn't change a comma that I did at HBO, but that didn't reach as many people. And so the rationale is that if I can add even an element of journalism and of context and of some sort of historical backdrop to the coverage of the Olympics, then I've accomplished something, at least, to a larger audience, and I've directed those who are interested toward the material that has greater depth. Now, now, now you just said it, the best deal I could make. Is it the situation where you understand what the priorities of the network are and you know where the boundaries are having done this for so many years? Or is it the sort of situation where you're actually sitting across the table from somebody from the network and you're laying out, these are my goals in terms of journalism in Brazil. I know you have your goals. Let's see where we can meet halfway. Not even halfway. I mean, I understand how it works. But, but it's an explicit negotiation is what I'm saying. Or, or is it? It's a discussion. I put some things on the table. I say, and I always try to make it something that I think would be good television. I'm not, I realize this is not PBS. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a podcast designed for a specific narrow audience. This is going to a broad swath of America. So whatever I suggest has to be something that, would be justified as good television. And I think there's a lot of mutual respect. We understand each other's goals. And very often, those goals overlap or they're exactly the same. I mean, I'm not just saying this to be nice. 90% or more of what NBC does on the Olympics is what I would do if I ran the whole thing. The cinematography, the expertise of the commentators. I mean, listen to Tom Hammond call attract me live mm -hmm. call a 100 meter sprint and get everybody's name in Chills. live in 10 seconds it's an incredible accomplishment look at the pieces that mary carrillo does that bring you some of the texture of the host city or, or the host nation a huge amount of what nbc does is superior work that actually elevates me because sometimes i just contribute a little bit to it or I narrate it, or I write a little bit of it, or sometimes I do nothing more than introduce and tag it. So I'm elevated by all these talented people who are working their asses off all around me. At the same time, I may have a little bit more of a nose for journalism and commentary than some of them do. And I've been there long enough that they give me at least a nod in that direction. And that's the accommodation that we make with each other. You know, it, and it's interesting, like the emblematic story for all of the tensions in Brazil was, of course, what happened at the very end with Ryan Lochte. And I, I was there in Brazil when that happened. And I saw among ordinary folks in Rio how quickly it turned from them being devastated at the thought of a famous Olympian being robbed to being furious at the thought that the story was in any way fabricated. You were having to report on this in real time. And of course, I think there were some very real tensions that broke out on the air between Billy Bush and Al Roker. I'm sure you saw that that went viral, yes. um, which to me was, was sort of like almost looking behind the curtain of how do you report on something like this? And of course, you know, your colleague Matt Lauer could not have been thrilled to report on one thing only to have Lochte contradict what he swore to Matt was the truth. What was it like? to manage that situation in real time? Well, the truth is that I was more throwing it, 
to various people. Ann Thompson would have a report. We'd have a reporter at the airport where a couple of the swimmers at least were pulled off their flight for questioning. Lockheed had already left Brazil. Matt had a phone conversation with him while Matt was still in Rio and Lockheed was back in the States. And Matt got a sit down with him in New York the last weekend of the Olympics. And I kind of led to that and tagged it. So I wasn't directly reporting the story as much as I was framing it and in a couple of instances reacting to it when they asked me, did I think that this would overshadow the Olympics? And my honest take then and now was that it certainly wasn't good for Ryan Lochte, that the other three guys would be forgiven and or forgotten, Mm -hmm. but that this would, relatively speaking, be a footnote. Bad for Lochte, but not bad for American Olympics or for Rio overall. But I did say one thing the night the story broke. It was off a report from Ann Thompson. And these are small things that the host can do in real time. This was a live Olympics, not a tape-delayed Olympics, even though some events have to be tape-delayed because you can't show everything at once. But everything I did was on the air live. And I said something to the effect of, this is a story as it begins to develop that involves possible criminality, but also has an element of public relations to it. And I think that connects to your question. Rio knew and acknowledged that they had not just the normal security concerns that always surround the Olympics, but they have an ongoing street crime problem that precedes the Olympics Mm -hmm. and is still there with drug gangs and, and the problems in the favelas and the street crime. And long after the circus is packed up and left town, they're still left with those problems. And they're sensitive about it. Could they pull off an Olympics that wasn't plagued by crime and that wasn't tragically marked by an act of terrorism? And while amidst an economic crisis as well. It, it, exactly. Could they do it? Right. Could they somehow, with bailing wire and duct tape, right. you know, pull this unlikely feat off? And with some glitches, by and large, they were successful. So if Lochte's story was true, they looked at it not just as a black eye for Lochte, but as a potential black eye for them. Then when it turned out that Lochte's story wasn't exactly true, they became furious because it was as if these ugly Americans have done dirt to our country and to this tremendous effort that we put forth against all the odds to make it a safe Olympics, and we don't want that to be the takeaway. I think what people in Rio and what people in Brazil wanted from Lochte was an apology for that, not so much that they would throw him in jail, but an apology. But then, and you know this from covering various stories, it starts out at point A, Mm -hmm. then it seems to be a point B, and then it winds up at point C. The story that Lochte told initially was not true, but... Neither was it true that nothing at all happened. Mm-hmm. It's pretty clear from the video that the security guard did hold a gun on them. And it seems like it was a credible story that these guys, who probably were drunk, were being asked to pay right then a certain amount of restitution for what turns out to have been minimal damage. Mm-hmm. The video afterwards shows no damage to the washroom there. It shows that some kind of poster might have been taken off the wall and moved to some other place, which they shouldn't have done. I mean, 
Floppy's 32 years old and he's acting like a drunken frat boy. It's not cool. Um, everyone understands that. But it's entirely possible that the security guard is basically saying to them, hey, pay up right now or I'm not going to let you leave. So were they robbed at gunpoint? No. Did someone put a gun to Lockheed's forehead like his initial story said? No. But did someone have a gun on them? Yes. Was he possibly, in effect, extorting money from them before he would let them leave? Yes. Were they drunk and confused because they don't speak Portuguese? Yes. Did eventually someone who could interpret, who could speak both English and Portuguese, show up and help to smooth the situation out? Yes. So the reality lay somewhere in between what the Chamber of Commerce, if there is exactly such a thing in Rio, would want you to believe, and what Ryan Lochte's initial story was. But by the time we sorted all that out, the Olympics were over. Yeah. Now, these questions about how to cover things in real time, especially when politics is just ripping through the sports story to the point of which it just cannot be ignored, takes us to Colin Kaepernick. When you heard about the anthem protests and that they were happening, where, where does your head go immediately, like in terms of how you want to cover it, how you want to frame it, how you try in a world that's very polarized, obviously, around this question of protesting during the anthem, how to cover it in a way that is humane and objective and does not fall prey to what I think are some of the worst instincts that we've seen in sports media to basically just go on the attack and the old shut up and play thing. Shut up and play. Or if you have any nuanced reaction to Kaepernick, other than he is exactly in the tradition of Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos, then you don't appreciate the depth of the problem and you don't understand his constitutional rights and, and you're hostile to protest and dissent. So there isn't much room for nuance here. So my selfish personal reaction was this. A minute and a half or two minutes at halftime isn't going to get it done. I'm not going to fall into that trap. There are too many shades of gray here that I would like to express to do justice to any kind of take. If you're going to confine me to 90 seconds or two minutes, which, by the way, NBC did not suggest, but that would have been I think very foolish on my part because it would have left me open for any kind of misinterpretation and to become a straw man for either side of the argument. Not because what I say is necessarily more important than what the next guy says, but certainly if I say it at halftime of Sunday Night Football, it's going to be the most widely seen, heard, or read take on it because of the size of the audience. And so what we did and are continuing to do, I don't know if we'll be successful, was to pursue an interview with Kaepernick. I would like to sit down with Colin Kaepernick for an extended interview and hope that a large portion of it actually airs on the NBC network, but confident that all of it would air on NBCSN and all of it would be posted on NBCSports.com and ask him all the pertinent questions. Ask him politely challenging questions. Have you considered this aspect or that? Have you looked at it this way or that? And then let him tell his own story. I think that would be a greater service than me trying to take a complicated issue and simplify it 
into a 90-second hot take commentary. That's just not where I want to be on a story like this. Mm. Now, your most memorable political halftime commentary was when you spoke about gun control after Kansas City Mm -hmm. Chiefs player Javon Belcher killed his partner, Cassandra Perkins, and then took his own life in front of his coach. Did you feel burned by the reaction to that? that? Does that play into you not wanting to do a halftime commentary? Well, it plays into it because there, there was a television mistake made. I don't regret addressing the issue. And even you just now, and and I know from our past conversations that you were in general agreement with me, you referred to it as a gun control commentary, whereas actually what I was talking about was the gun culture that pervades a good part of sports. And I wasn't the first person to bring that up. Both the New York Times and Sports Illustrated in the two or three years previously had written extensive takeout pieces about athletes and guns. You don't have to be a zealot about gun control to recognize that there is a problem within sports about the attitudes toward guns and a rather concerning number of athletes who carry guns. And the simple reality, no matter how you feel about the Second Amendment or the way some people interpret it, that the number of tragedies or regrettable incidents involving athletes and guns is too long to list. Whereas the number of times when an athlete with a gun took a bad situation and turned it around for the better is a very, very short list. Why does every league have specific rules against players bringing guns to any league facility, to any practice facility, to any arena, to any stadium, on any bus, plane, any conveyance, any team luncheon? Is it because, by and large, baseball, football, and hockey owners and commissioners are raving left-wingers? Or is it because common sense has shown them that when you have young, testosterone-fueled males, many of whom have mistaken ideas about guns and their responsible use, when they are armed, will a majority of them wind up in trouble? No. Will a majority of them wind up in tragic situations? No. But will some of them wind up in such Mm. situations? Yeah. The record there is clear. It doesn't make any difference where you fall on the political spectrum. That was the point that I was making or attempting to make. Mm -hmm. You want some actual perspective on this? Well, a bit of it comes from the Kansas City-based writer Jason Whitlock, with whom I do not always agree, but who today said it so well that we may as well just quote or paraphrase from the end of his article. Our current gun culture, Whitlock wrote, ensures that more and more domestic disputes will end in the ultimate tragedy and that more convenience store confrontations over loud music coming from a car will leave more teenage boys bloodied and dead. Handguns do not enhance our safety. They exacerbate our flaws, tempt us to escalate arguments, and bait us into embracing confrontation rather than avoiding it. In the coming days, Javon Belcher's actions and their possible connection to football will be analyzed. Who knows? But here, wrote Jason Whitlock, is what I believe. If Javon Belcher didn't possess a gun, he and Cassandra Perkins would both be alive today. No one thinks that a gun is the only possible way to kill somebody. 
you know, I, I knew O.J. Simpson, mm-hmm. right? that yes, there's a number of ways that you can kill someone other than with a gun, but it's just more likely that the worst possible outcome will occur when guns are present and in the hands of people who might not have a responsible attitude toward them. The lesson I learned from that is that if you're going to take on a hot-button topic and one where your own take has shades of gray, you just need to make sure that you have enough time to do it. And immediately afterwards, off the top of my head, I wouldn't even have needed a script. The thing that I wish I had said in that situation is whenever a tragedy or some cold reality intrudes upon our games, you always hear the hackneyed cliche, well, that really puts it all in perspective. You hear it over and over again. It's one of the most mindless cliches in all the sports. Because if that really put it all in perspective, then we'd have some perspective going forward. And we don't. So if we really want some perspective coming out of a tragedy like this, then a conversation should begin about a number of issues, including the possible relationship between football and violence. Mm -hmm. Can those who play a belligerent and brutal game, can we expect all of them to confine that belligerence and that aggression to the field? What about head injuries? We're learning more and more about the long-term effects, but we also know that in the here and now, head trauma can have an impact on impulse control and aggression, especially in young people, because the brain isn't fully formed until you're 25 years old. And then I wish I had said, and what about the whole relationship between athletes and guns? Not talking here about anyone's lawful and responsible exercise of their legitimate Second Amendment rights, but I am talking about an irresponsible attitude toward guns, a misplaced notion of street cred that involves guns, that too often leads to tragedy involving young athletes. That's what I wanted to say. Now, had I said that, would I still have gotten blowback from some Second Amendment absolutists? Yeah, but at least it would have been clearer and would have been less open to misinterpretation. So my Mm. impulse to address the issue, I don't regret. What I actually think about the issue, I don't back away from. But I do take responsibility for the fact that I didn't express myself as effectively as I'd like to think I generally do on that night. And one of the oddities of television is, let's say you talk about whatever topic on your podcast or any other forum, and you want to address it again to clarify it, to flesh it out, to take it further, you go right back to it. Sure. If a columnist at the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune wants to write about the reaction to something he or she has written, they come back to it on Friday after what they wrote on Tuesday. It generally doesn't work that way in television. I couldn't come back the next week and say, give me three minutes and let me state the whole. It was over with. It was gone with the wind. And I'm left with whatever reaction, much of it not accurate, and whatever notion people have about what my attitude is toward this issue or what I actually said that night, it's gone through too many permutations and reactions from people who've never met or spoken to me and never taken into account my general track record. Mm -hmm. I can never retrieve it and never truly set the record straight. That's a lesson of television, and part of the blame lies with me.
Let's go back to Kapner because I'd love your thoughts. I know that you wrote and spoke extensively about Muhammad Ali after he passed away and about mm-hmm. – you mentioned him briefly earlier. I know you were at the, the funeral in Louisville, as, as was I. And I, I wanted to ask you, though, about your, your thoughts on Kaepernick on the most general level in terms of the tradition of athletic struggle and the question of courage. Because mm-hmm. I think you have to say whether one agrees or disagrees – with his stance, the act of what he's doing and the discussion that it has generated has taken courage. Would, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And no one denies, no matter where they are on the political spectrum, no thoughtful person denies his right to do it. But I wonder whether we have full clarity here. I was 16 years old when Tommy Smith and John Carlos made their gesture at the Mexico City Olympics. I remember watching it and being thrilled and inspired by it, even as a white kid who lived in suburban America. It was very clear to me. It was a profound and clear statement. We are individual black men in America sent to represent our country, not playing for a team or in a league, set to represent our country, a country where in 1968, upon our return, our opportunities are severely limited. Our oppression as a people is ongoing. It wasn't rejection of the nation's ideals. I saw it in keeping with the profound statement of Martin Luther King, where he called upon America to live out the meaning of its creed. You recall that in 1968, a number of athletes, including the highly admirable Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who as a public intellectual has just impressed me. I was always impressed by Kareem. But what he writes now, the essays he writes, the thoughtful takes he has Mm -hmm. on ongoing issues, the books he has written, he has elevated himself beyond seven foot two, if that's possible. But Kareem and others boycotted the Mm -hmm. 1968 Olympics. That was kind of in keeping with Muhammad Ali's stance at that time. Dr. Harry Edwards was instrumental in orchestrating that. Many African-American athletes went, but some did not. And I thought that that was a meaningful protest. My question here about Kaepernick is, do do we have clarity? A lot of people who understand and sympathize with his concern about the ongoing abuses of police power that are too often, in fact, disproportionately directed toward people of color and specifically African-Americans. There's no denying that that is true. But is it the entire truth? Does he believe that to be definitive about policemen? the larger number of whom, black and white, put their lives on the line every day for citizens, black and white, who not only serve dutifully, but often do remarkably heroic things. Well, this is where Kaepernick has impressed me, because one of the things that he's been very clear about, like when we look at everything that he said to reporters and look for the very nuance that, you know, you spoke about at the start of this interview, one of the things he keeps going back to is not saying that this is every single police officer goes out on the streets to hunt young black men. It's 
that there's no system of accountability and then police organizations tend to close ranks when that one person is accused, which would never happen. Like, for example, in, in your industry, if a broadcaster did something horrific, you wouldn't have every broadcaster defend that person. And so there's I, something I about police culture that we need to look, take a much closer look at. I don't disagree with that at all. I just think that one of the issues here, and this is not to undermine Kaepernick's intentions, but if you're trying to make a point with the larger American public, not only those who are inclined to agree with you and understand the point you're making, but those who are persuadable, when they see not just Kaepernick, but others kneeling or a clenched fist salute, which I have no problem with, right? This is, this is their right, and I understand the point that they are making, and it can be made with dignity. But a lot of people look at it and say, wait a minute, we're sympathetic if you're trying to call attention to an injustice. But to them, the anthem represents not the nation's perfection or only its military might, but it represents the nation's ideals. It represents the very principles that allow us to reform and move forward, however imperfectly. It represents the sacrifice and the decency of so many people past and present, millions of whom are in basic sympathy with the struggle for equality, both historic and present. And so I, I'm not so sure that Collins' position has as much clarity or is as profound as what happened back in 1968. And I would also say, in fairness, if I were interviewing Colin, look, the messenger matters. When you say that Hillary Clinton called black teens predators, no, she didn't. No more than you called all policemen terrorists, urban terrorists. She spoke of specifically dangerous young black men in certain inner city communities who posed a danger. They're, they're criminals. They posed a danger to the residents of those communities, the overwhelming majority of whom were black. Right. So whether you agreed with her statement or not, thought it was nuanced enough or not, she certainly didn't just in a sweeping statement call black teenagers criminals or predators. At the same time, Colin, when you show up wearing a Fidel Castro T-shirt, as imperfect as America is, isn't Cuba a more oppressive nation by nature, by law, not by mistakes or imperfections, but by its very nature? You want to be wearing a Castro T-shirt? Well, it was it was Fidel. It was Fidel and Malcolm together. In fairness, and in fairness to the nuance of the shirt, it was Fidel and Malcolm in conversation. Okay, my with each other. my bad there. My bad there. All right, but again, you know what? Mal Malcolm ought to be separate from Fidel, and it, it, it'd be better off wearing a Malcolm T-shirt. Then you're making your point better. Look, he, he's a guy in his late twenties. That's sort of middle age for an athlete. It's still a kid. For most of us, in terms of you know intellectual evolution and grasp of nuance and context, yeah, it doesn't help when you show up for practice and you're wearing socks that depict policemen as pigs. You're undermining your own point. But then I would get to this point, which I haven't heard anyone raise, and it's this. 
okay, fine. Suppose a conservative teammate says that not only do these things happen, but it is the law of the land that abortion is legal. I consider that to be immoral, says this particular football player for some NFL team. And for that reason, I will kneel or turn my back during the national anthem. Now, that person would have an equal right to make that statement, whether you or I agreed with it or not, he'd have an equal right to make that statement. And since the nation, no matter how it evolves, no matter how much we've improved, no matter how much we hope to continue to improve, a hundred years from now, whatever the social problems are, they'll still exist. Because no nation, no matter what, what its ideals are, ever lives up completely to its ideals. People are imperfect. So there'll always be some issue out there. A hundred years from now, when we're gone, there'll be issues out there. And in theory, a reason for someone or group of people exercising their constitutional rights to do some version of what Colin Kaepernick and others are doing now. They'll have every right to do it. My question will be, what will the impact be? Will it further understanding or will it just eventually become white noise? But but in fairness, I mean, yeah. Kaepernick is older than Smith and Carlos when they made their stance. And you mm-hmm. and it certainly was not taken at the time as something that was for the promise of America or the best ideals in America. I mean, they were overwhelmingly pilloried by the overwhelming number of people in the country. For well, they, they, the were they, the they were thrown out of the Olympics. They were thrown out of the Olympics. And Kaepernick, and, 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 and I, I'm just thinking about 16-year-old Bob Costas and asking you to think about the 16-year-olds who are seeing Kaepernick and saying, well, I'm going to take a knee, even though I'm getting death threats. It's happening at too many schools when they do so. And there's something about the inspiration of what he's doing precisely because it's messy and polarizing and that I I think gives it weight that it, that frankly more weight than the reason statements of LeBron James and Carmelo Anthony at the ESPY awards. It's clearly more electric than that kind of very fashion statement. It's more electric, but it sends the whole issue into the Thunderdome of American discourse and people can tease out of it whatever portion they want. The point, as I understand it, that Colin Kaepernick is seeking to make and to amplify is true, okay? All in capital letters, true, T-R-U-E. But is it the entire truth? Mm -hmm. Or are there other aspects to the issue that he inadvertently either overlooks or perhaps even disrespects. Well, why do you th- those, are, those are legitimate questions. Sure, sure. And the question that, that I know a lot of us are, are sort of thinking about and trying to understand is why is this connecting? Because there were people who were proclaiming Colin Kaepernick's gesture to be a quote-unquote failure, like Peter Beiner in the Atlantic Magazine, David Brooks in the New York Times, days after he started it. And now here it is, almost a month later, and you see it spreading, and you see Mm -hmm. people embracing it. So clearly he's connected. I mean, obviously, if he was kneeling because he believed that we have to stop putting lead in the water, it wouldn't connect with people. Obviously, what he's doing is having some sort of very 
strong connection with other athletes, professional athletes, NFL players. Yeah. It's 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 historic, don't you think? In that way, I I do, and and as I, I hope I've made it clear that I get the point that he is making, and mm-hmm. long before he made it, I thought it was a significant a significant issue. Some kind of dismiss it as oh well, an incident here or there. No, it's pervasive, and it needs to be reformed. That doesn't mean that it typifies anything close to the majority of self-sacrificing, brave, and decent policemen and women. But is it enough? And is it both historically and ongoing enough of an issue that it has a significant impact? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So I agree with the point that Colin Kaepernick is trying to make. But what I wonder is, as you say, as it spreads and inspires others, when you see a handful of players at each NFL game, either kneeling or, or holding up a clenched fist, I think too much of the audience, including those that would be in basic sympathy with whatever it is that's going through those players' minds, they're not sure what's going through those players' minds. What does this represent in this instance? What are you specifically thinking and saying? Is it only about police brutality? Is it about overall American policy? What is the point being made here? I'm not so sure that we have that clarity. Mm. See, I think he's trying to start a discussion. And it's like the mere fact that we're having this, which I think is a terrific discussion, is evidence of its success. I think if anyone's waiting for Colin Kaepernick to put out a policy paper, they're probably going to be waiting too long. But if it forces Mm -hmm. us to then say, all right, we have a problem here and it needs to be addressed, particularly in the world of sports where a lot of people tune in to watch black athletes but don't necessarily want to hear what they have to say, it can be very bracing. Maybe it needs to be bracing. That connects to what I just said. In some cases, we're not sure what it is they have to say. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we see the gesture, right? And I am not offended by the gesture. And I am in support of what I believe the gesture to represent. But I think if it doesn't spark conversations and dialogue that deal in greater specifics and have nods toward the context, then I think eventually, it's just going to seem like, well, there it is again, and it's not going to spark the kind of conversation we want. Mm. I think I... we need more specifics. Here's, here's another thought that few people have brought up, and that's the whole connection. And you, want, you want to hear something that's going to be misunderstood and yanked out of context? Please. The whole connection <laughs> between sports, between sports and patriotism and the national anthem. I stand for the national anthem. I've never believed that our country was perfect. I stand for the anthem out of respect and out of belief and support for the ideals that it represents. But somehow this has become attached to sports where not only do you have the anthem before the game, but before every NFL game, you have a broad and spectacular display every game, not just the Super Bowl or the season opener, but a game between Jacksonville and Tennessee. There's a, an American flag that covers the field. There's often a flyover. There's often fireworks, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. 
But if you go to see Hamilton, a play about the founding fathers, does anybody in the audience say, wait a minute, wait a minute, where was the national anthem? (laughs) If you went to see Saving Private Ryan, (laughs) a, a movie about American heroism and sacrifice to save the world from Nazism and fascism, does anyone say, wait a minute, before Tom Hanks utters a word, I want to hear the national anthem. You go to see Daniel Day-Lewis as Lincoln. Wait a minute, what was the national anthem? It's connected to sports. I'm not saying it's wrongly connected to sports, but it's uniquely connected to sports. And at the same time, nothing brings so many different people to a television screen or to a stadium from so many different and diverse backgrounds and demographics as the sports. Mm. And so you know, you, there's going to be a bleep storm when something like this happens. And maybe that's just what Colin Kaepernick wanted. You've got NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, someone who has fined players for having the wrong shoelaces. For mm-hmm. um, he, he fined Jake Plummer for doing a personal tribute to the late Pat Tillman on his uniform. And he has gone in the last several weeks from ignoring the protests to speaking out with a, a modest kind of light disapproval to then this past week sounding like he was almost cheerleading for them, saying, I love that we have these civically engaged players. And I find this really interesting. And I, th- I think personally that it speaks to him understanding that he's got a bit of a tinderbox here with a league that is 70% African-American and 0% of owners are African-American. I believe it's 16% of coaches right now are African-American. And I think the last thing he'd want is players turning that that fist in the air, if you will, inward to the league. That's just my take on it. But I'd love your thoughts as someone who's interviewed Goodell and who knows the league about what you think about the league's take on all this is. Well, there's already general conflict between the league office and the commissioner's office and players in general, because they don't like Goodell's role as judge, jury, appeals officer. So there's an ongoing discontent there between the NFLPA and the league and probably wise not to uh, not to dig the hole any deeper if you're mm-hmm. Roger Goodell. Since they had no policy, no national anthem policy in place beforehand, they're not going to make an ex post facto rule. And I think that by and large, maybe I'm misreading this, are there a lot of people that are angry and they consider themselves uber patriots and They don't understand that part of patriotism is dissent. There's some that are angry, yes. But I really think that a majority of people, maybe I'm just traveling in the wrong circles and not getting the true temperature of the country, but at least the people that I associate with, they understand and largely agree with the point that Colin Kaepernick is making. But they believe that it is a fraction, a significant fraction, but a fraction of larger issues, all of which kind of interconnect. And it's got to go beyond just a protest over that aspect of our social ills and perhaps open up a nuanced conversation in which people aren't going to be dismissed out of hand as racists or they're not going to be dismissed out of hand as anti-American and anti-patriot and anti-police and anti-military, where we can really listen to each other instead of retreating to our respective corners. 
because I think in 2016, these are issues that are not just black and white. They have shades of gray to them. And I think I've used the word nuance about 114 (laughs) times in this conversation. But a symbolic gesture can spark a conversation. But that conversation ought to be a nuanced conversation. Good luck. Take a look at the presidential race. Good luck getting a nuanced conversation going. But that's what I think some of us still prefer. Wouldn't you love to see it? And on this, wouldn't you love to see it? An hour, two hours, maybe HBO is the place, but ESPN could be the place. Wouldn't you like to see a true civil, not people yelling at each other, conversation about the overlapping issues? It's not a single binary, clear, laser-focused thing about the overlapping issues that the Kaepernick gesture causes us to think about. Wouldn't you like to be part of a panel that someone like me, wouldn't have to be me, but I wouldn't mind being the moderator of that panel, that brought together a number of voices, not selected because they are incendiary, but selected because they have something thoughtful and worthwhile to say. And And the people are not necessarily opponents or antagonists, but they do have differing perspectives, and they can share them as Americans in search of improving their country, if that doesn't sound too idealistic. And they can share them without thinking that automatically, if you disagree with me, you must be a person that I should dislike or dismiss or characterize as something you are not. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be helpful? I think that would be very helpful, yes. And I think people would watch it, too. Let's hold our breath waiting for it to happen and see which one of us expires first. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Bob Costas, I mean, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. How much trouble do you think I got myself into today? Honestly, on a scale of 1 to 10, I think eh, a 2.7. <laughs> Thank you so much to Bob Costas. And now, some choice words here. Look, do you want to make 1968 Olympic medalist John Carlos angry? Describe his iconic black glove fist that he pumped to the heavens as a black power salute. As he has explained to me often, and this is a quote, black power is a beautiful thing, but in 1968, raising your fist meant power to the people. I wanted my fist to represent power to all oppressed people on the earth. I think the media has called it black power because then the gesture becomes something that is just for black people and it segregates the message. And the message is that we need to come together to rise up. Another way to upset John Carlos is to ignore the role of his dear friend, the late silver medalist Peter Norman, who was a part of this protest. The white Australian did not raise a fist, but he stood with Carlos and Smith wearing a button that read Olympic Project for Human Rights. Carlos says, they write Peter out on purpose of the history so white athletes don't have him as a hero or an example. I thought about this when assessing the lack of white male professional participation in Colin Kaepernick's anthem protests against police violence. These athletic protests are going viral 
Yet while white women in the WNBA and white high school football players and volleyball players have proudly joined their brown and black teammates, no white male professional athlete has taken a knee or raised a fist as of this moment. The opposition to Kaepernick's protest, from the police unions to Beltway pundits to an online army of bigots, wants to ensure that this protest against police violence stays as segregated as possible. If high-profile white NFL or Major League Baseball players start to kneel in solidarity with the idea that Black Lives Matter, then the law and order crowd loses racism as the most effective tool in their kit to keep this movement quarantined. But people should not confuse the inaction of white athletes with an absence of thought about what it means when people on your team, people you call family, are in pain. This past week, there have been several comments that show that a small layer of white athletes are truly reckoning with what this movement means and how they can support it. Here are three notable statements, and I'm going to read them out because I think they should be preserved for the historical record because we're going to remember them as the seedlings of something that is going to grow. Let's start with Oakland A's pitcher Sean Doolittle, who spoke to Doug Glanville of ESPN on the absence of activism in Major League Baseball. This is what he said, and really listen to how thoughtful this is. He said, As far as I can't breathe or Black Lives Matter or the Kaepernick anthem demonstration, I feel uncomfortable speaking to that. I'd rather listen. Here are the facts, though. The league is composed of over 60% white men. When so much of the league has a background or comes from a place where there might be more privilege and opportunity, it's very difficult to relate to something they have never seen nor experienced. That's human nature. People are slower to educate themselves and be informed about something if they have never experienced it. They might even downplay the level at which those problems exist. But that certainly doesn't let people off the hook. My only experience with police are when they stand guard in our bullpen or when they escort us to the airport. No one has ever questioned my legitimacy as a citizen or a homeowner or a pedestrian. But I can't pretend it doesn't happen just because it hasn't happened to me. If we are willing to have an open mind and empathize rather than immediately getting defensive, then maybe we can start a far more constructive dialogue that hopefully leads to addressing these problems. Then there was New England defensive end Chris Long speaking on ESPN Radio's Rosillo and Canal show, a show, by the way, that is very unfriendly to these anthem protests. This is what Chris Long said. He said, I've had a lot of thoughts about it and it's hard because you want to talk to the media. You want to say something about it. And as you know, with the media, it's a long conversation. And if you talk about it for a few minutes, they might take 10 or 15 seconds out of your quote and take you out of context and run with the narrative. But I'll make it pretty clear. I support my peers in exercising their right to protest. This is a wonderful country, and I think everyone agrees on that. Well, not everyone. But there are things in our country that can improve. I don't think that by acknowledging as a white male that America isn't the same for me, maybe as it is for everybody, the same great place, that we're complicit in the problem or we're saying America isn't a great place. If we're saying there are incidents of oppression in this country, systematically or individually, I don't think saying, well, in country X, Y, or Z, it's 10 times worse, is making things any better. I think that may be true, but why can't we improve? 
I play in a league that's 70% black, and my peers, guys I come to work with, guys I respect, who are very socially aware and are intellectual guys, if they identify something that they think is worth putting their reputations on the line, creating controversy, I'm going to listen to those guys. And I respect the anthem. I would never kneel for it. We all come from different walks of life and think differently about the anthem and the flag and what it means. But I think you can respect and find a lot of truth in what these guys are talking about and not kneel. Those aren't mutually exclusive ideas. Listen, it's been complicated. It's brought out a lot of what we as fans and players think about the anthem. A lot of strong feelings on both sides. But I think we can all agree that we love our vets. We love the vast majority of officers of law enforcement. But they are human beings too and there are isolated incidents that need to be better and I think all guys are saying is listen most people might be great cops great people that protect our communities but when there are injustices let's find justice for those situations I respect my peers I respect Colin Kaepernick Colin has really put his reputation on the line he's taken a beating he's also had support I don't think he did it for publicity and listen I'm just going to listen to my peers because I respect those guys and I can't put myself in their shoes End quote. Look, the fact that Chris Long said this to two sports talkers who would have only been too happy to hear Long trash his protesting teammates makes his statement all the more remarkable. And lastly, there's Josh Rosen, the quarterback of the UCLA Bruins, who did not speak about the Kaepernick protests, but it is notable and egregiously underreported that he spoke strongly against the NCAA recently, saying... I have connections that will do me well in life. I'll be okay without football. I want to fight for the people who won't be okay. They're the ones who are going to be screwed in life because they're the ones who are living in a team room because they can't make a security deposit. We're not going to say slave labor to describe the NCAA, but it's almost like indentured servitude. Look, I'm going to be okay. I want to fight for those who won't be okay. I see it every day with these kids who are underprivileged. Look, take 0.1% of the hundreds of millions generated by our labor and give it to the families who are on food stamps on our team, end quote. Rosen also said it's absurd to consider what he and his teammates do amateur sports. These comments, whether from Doolittle, Long, or Rosen, they're not the most radical comments in the world, but they are indicative of a new consciousness. It has not manifested itself in deeds as of this writing, but that day is coming. Megan Rapinoe has shown, by taking a knee while wearing the USA uniform, that it can be done. She said, It was just something small that I could do, and something that I plan to keep doing in the future. It's important to have white people stand in support of people of color on this. We don't need to be the leading voice, of course, but standing in support of the anthem protesters is something that's really powerful. You can sense that more overt acts of solidarity are coming, and they cannot happen soon enough. And now we got the Just Stand Up Award, which we give to people who use their hyper-exalted, brought to you by Nike platform to say something about the world of sports in which we live. Uh, This week, the Just Stand Up Award for me... goes to the young people at Garfield High School, the Howard University cheerleaders, and the women of the volleyball team at South Minneapolis High School. Those are just three examples, but they're three team-wide examples of young people who are taking a knee while the anthem plays. 
and it is courageous. I've seen it myself on my own social media timelines, how many death threats they're getting, and they don't care. And the reason why they don't care about the threats, the reason why they're stronger than the hate, the reason why they're showing resistance in the face of utter madness in terms of the violence that it's provoking, the reason why all that's happening is because they realize they're fighting for something bigger. And there's a two-word answer for why they're fighting. If anybody next time says to you, why is this happening? And that's Terrence Crutcher. And that's uh, the last point is that I want to dedicate the show this week uh, to the memory of Terrence Crutcher killed by Tulsa police. Hands up. They still shot him in the back. The person who shot him, the officer, Shelby, uh, she had two complaints against her already uh, for excessive force. But there she was with a gun shooting him in the back. We can do better than this. We have to do better than this. Big shout out to my friend, Deton Thomas, played in the NBA, uh, was from Tulsa, new big crutch, as he called him, and uh, now has to live with this pain. And so please, please stop asking why people are protesting, because the problem is not the protest. The problem is what's happening. If you find yourself upset with the people who are pointing out the fact that we have an extrajudicial police violence problem in this country, if you are mad at them for pointing it out, well, then honestly, you might be part of the problem. Here's some advice. God gave you two ears and one mouth. Do some listening, less talking, and understand that we got a real issue on our hands. Hey, Dave, before we go, you got to hear these calls that came in to the Edge of Sports hotline. All right, let's hear them. Hi, Dave. I just wanted to uh, point out, a uh, he's not a local guy, but Clay Travis had an interesting article pointed out that there's a contradiction with uh, Colin Kaepernick's argument in that he loses a little bit of credibility because he was wearing a Fidel Castro T-shirt during his press conference after uh, after the game last or two weekends ago. Thanks. Bye. Uh, hey, Jason. A couple things about that. First of all, t- don't call up this show and quote Clay Travis as if he's an authority on anything, um, except maybe what the spread is in the Alabama-Tennessee game. But about politics, c- come on now. Like, be serious, man. Uh, second of all, he wasn't wearing a Fidel Castro shirt. He was wearing a Malcolm X Fidel Castro shirt and an X hat. And I'm sorry, but people are going to have to accept the fact that Fidel Castro is, is a resistance icon for people throughout the world and that there is a reason for that. And if you don't understand the reason for that, then try to read something about the history of U.S. imperialism, and then maybe you'll understand why that's the case. Try to understand why people look at Fidel Castro and don't see history's greatest monster, but instead see somebody who stood up to a country that, as Martin Luther King said, and people seem to be loving quoting Martin Luther King lately, a country in the United States that is the, quote, greatest purveyor of violence throughout the world, end quote. I am not a Castroite for what it's worth. I stand with the Cuban people against any form of repression, but I also stand with the country of Cuba against uh, U.S. imperial interests. Hi, my name is Julia. I am a new listener to your podcast, and I'm also a Denver Broncos fan, and I could not be more proud of Brandon Marshall. But every week that passes, I hope that a white player will kneel with Colin Kaepernick and Brandon Marshall and the other players that have kneeled. And I think that player should be Aaron Rodgers. I think that in the past he has exhibited some drive for social justice, particularly when he spoke about Islamophobia after those horrible remarks were made during the moment of silence. 
So, yeah, I'm just wondering if you've ever spoken to him and if you think that maybe he will be the first white male athlete to kneel with Colin Kaepernick. Okay, thank you. Bye. Hey, that was a terrific call. Look, I hope it's Aaron Rodgers because Aaron Rodgers is arguably the biggest star in the National Football League. And... I think the most valuable star in the National Football League. If you look at one player that one team can't afford to lose, I mean, you take Aaron Rodgers off the Green Bay Packers, they're not even the Chicago Bears. So what I would hope, they're not even the Coastal Carolina Chanticleers without Aaron Rodgers. So what I would hope would be that Aaron Rodgers be the first one to take that knee because if he did that in conservative Green Bay, Wisconsin, and it is a very conservative town, in Scott Walker's Wisconsin, I mean, people would have to not only take it, but they would have to love it. And so, yeah, I would love for Aaron Rodgers to be the first white player to do it, and I think his example would set a shockwave throughout the league. And for what it's worth, you asked about if I've ever spoken with Aaron Rodgers. I've certainly never spoken to him on the record. There is an open invitation out there right now. Aaron Rodgers, you want to talk about this stuff? Come on this show, Edge of Sports. Hi, Dave. I want to thank you for the podcast. I don't understand how you don't have ads or a subscription. I can't believe this is free. I would pay for it. It's fantastic. Uh, Anyway, I do not think that 9-11 is an inappropriate day to protest anything. Anyone who knows anything about protests knows that it only works on days that it makes the privileged feel uncomfortable. So 9-11 is actually a perfect day to protest uh, police brutality, to protest anything this country is doing wrong, for the simple fact that many people believe it is inappropriate. It rubs people the wrong way. And when you rub people the wrong way, that's when they actually wake up and go, why is this happening? Why is this person rubbing me the wrong way? Well, they're rubbing you the wrong way because there's bodies in the street, like Kaepernick said. Thank you so much, Dave. Wow, thank you so much for that call. And let me just say that I I could not agree with that more. Protest is about disruption. And I think one of the things that we suffer from this country in this country is a mistaken view and perspective on the protest history of the civil rights movement, which people look at and is often uh, presented as sort of being like the March on Washington, where thousands of people get together and sort of march solemnly to some sort of grand monument and make speeches. That's not what the civil rights movement was, and that's not what protest is. Protest is disruption. Protest is afflicting the comfortable. Protest is forcing people out of their cocoons to actually look at some of the problems that are existing in this world. And that's exactly what the protests on 9-11 did. They forced people to take notice. And yeah, of course, some people will look at that, as Bob Costas said, and become even further repelled and further polarized. But I truly think it's worth it for that section of people in the middle who just had not noticed. And we're not thinking about it and not considering the idea that these players are actually human beings who are connected with communities that feel like they're under siege. And if you can even reach that group of people, then it is worth it. It is so worth it. And then there's the other aspect, too. People say, oh, well, you're just singing to the choir if you speak to people who agree with you. Yeah, but the choir still has to sing in tune. The choir still has to be actually willing to stand up and sing. And I think one of the things that's speaking out that these, what these players are doing, what it does is that you see it happening on football fields from Syracuse to Beaumont, Texas, to Seattle, Washington, to Oakland, California. What you see it doing is it's organizing people in that choir to actually start singing. Hey, Dave, this is Daniel 
and responding to the poll question about whether or not September 11th is an inappropriate day for a demonstration. And I would say it sure is. But as long as the NFL and this country are going to start waving the flag and glorifying the military and celebrating the death of hundreds of thousands of people in the Middle East, all in the name of 9-11, then it is vitally important to stage demonstrations to countervail those forces. I had a family member killed on September 11th, and the way this country, quote-unquote, honors that day saddens me. Thank you. Yeah, th- thank you for that call. Um, I'm from New York City. Uh, my dad's office building was at the World Trade Center, and uh, he was on his way to work when the whole thing came down. So, yeah, I don't speak about these issues lightly either. And so, yes, as long as the NFL keeps glorifying patriotism, militarism, and war, and as long as they use, and I use that word very carefully, but I mean it, use 9-11 as a way to promote their brand of the National Football League and the whole respect the shield nonsense, then yeah, people have every right to protest it. Because no, I'm sorry, we don't live in an NFL-run autocracy, and Roger Goodell is not the Vladimir Putin of the United States. You know, this is still a country, and the NFL is a business inside that country, and we have the right to say or do whatever we damn well please. For next week's show, which I'm really excited about, people can call in 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. The question that I would love for you to answer, what do you think about the idea of saying that Colin Kaepernick is part of the tradition of Muhammad Ali? Do you think that is something that disrespects Muhammad Ali or do you think that is something that is absolutely true, that you see an absolute ironclad connection between Ali and Kaepernick? I'd love to know what you think about that out there. I know we got a lot of smart listeners about sports and society. So the Ali-Kaepernick connection, I'd love your thoughts. 401-426-3343. Thank you so much to all the callers who called in. Thank you so much for Bob Costas for being so generous with your time. Thank you to my producer, Dan Bloom. And thank you to um, our new production associate, Dave David Tigabu here on the Edge of Sports. Very happy to have him as part of the team. And yo, to everybody out there, you can reach me anytime you want at Edge of Sports. You can listen to back episodes of the show at www.edgeofsportspodcast.com. For everybody out there listening, yo, we love our listeners. Make no mistake about it. If you love us, tell a friend, rate the show, uh, write down a little review. All that stuff helps more than you could know. I'm Dave Zirin, and we are out of here. Peace.